Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 143, How Students Perceive Cheating. For this episode, Denor and I took a look at an article from Inside Higher Eds, which we are linking to in the show notes. And it highlights about nine different reasons why students might cheat. And the reasons might surprise you, because these include pressure to do well, like from family or from academic requirements, you know, you've got to get an A or you've got to pass with a 2.5 or whatever it is. Lack of preparation for exams is a very common reason for cheating. And heavy or unrealistic course workloads. Now, those are just the first three of the nine that this article talks about. But the result of these particular three, which had the most responses from students, is that students end up playing basically Russian roulette with their classes because they have to consistently evaluate, you know, which classes need more effort than others. What happens in classes where the grades get lowered if they cheat? What happens in the classes where it's just, you know, a slap on the wrist and don't do that again? The classes that have a greater impact on the student's life, those are going to be the ones that they're more likely to cheat in. So if you're teaching a high stakes class, if you're teaching a class where if you don't pass this, you can't pass with this major, you can't get that major, be aware, students are more likely to cheat in your class. Students also pointed out that having the opportunity to cheat made them more likely to cheat. And that was fueled by a belief that all of their peers were cheating. Now, when Inside Higher Ed surveyed these students, they found out that roughly 5% of them had ever actually cheated or been accused of cheating, but they believed that at least 20 to 30% of their classmates were cheating. They also believed that there might not be any consequences that matter to them if they're caught cheating. They think that every instance of cheating might be a slap on the wrist at worst. Mm -hmm. Or a redo this paper, right? And then the last three things that they got a lot from the student survey was students have a lack of ethics. And yes, there are students who really don't care about ethical guidelines, but they're not as common as you think they are. There's also a lack of understanding of course policies, of exam policies, of teacher expectations, of course expectations. And finally, just not understanding what academic dishonesty is. We tend to throw that phrase around a lot. Don't be academically dishonest, right? What does that mean? Do we ever define it? Do we ever tell students this is what we're talking about? I have seen and I admit I have written academic dishonesty policies in my syllabus that say things like this, this and this and this. Yeah, but if there's other things that aren't on that list and the students haven't been told that's academically dishonest, we can't assume that they'll know. Now notice that of this list of nine things, there's only really two that refer to individual characteristics of the student. That's lack of preparation and lack of ethics. So basically we're talking about the effort they put in or didn't and whether they have an ethical base to say maybe this is wrong and I shouldn't do it. But the other seven all stem from misunderstandings or they are things that the professor can control or both. So things like course workloads, things like explaining this is what academic dishonesty means, having clear expectations for the assignments. If you have those, then academic dishonesty, cheating goes down. But keep in mind the way many professors view cheating is we assume it's a moral failing 
that must be punished by the most serious methods allowed by the university. Right? Write up the students, send them up the ladder, potentially get them expelled. There are a lot of professors that think very punitively. But we suggest a better way of thinking about cheating is in terms of cost-benefit analysis that students do. When a test in a class is worth a lot and the student feels the need for an A on that test, that's going to increase the chances of cheating because the risk of being caught and punished is outweighed by the reward, not only of feeling good about an A, but maybe that's a class that student needs for the major or for a scholarship or to remain academically or athletically eligible. And so what this approach of cost-benefit analysis does is it allows us to either raise the potential punishments, which a lot of professors do already, and or we can lower the weight of assignments and tests to take away some of that motivation to cheat. If a test is only worth 10% of the grade instead of 35, you've taken away 25%, which might reduce the benefit to, to a student trying to cheat. Now, the reasons we listed, only the first three, the pressure to do well from outside uh, forces like the school or from family, lack of preparation, and heavy course workloads had more than 50% of the responses from the students polled. So those are really the big three we wanted to focus on. Now, students assume that cheating happens more frequently than it does. Denor already mentioned this. And at least a few of them reported being caught, but they also assume that cheating is just something that happens on the regular. That belief also makes them much more likely to cheat. Now, the Inside Higher Ed article suggests six steps toward, you know, bringing down cheating. And one of them is aimed more at the institution, and actually a couple of them are aimed more at the institution, but we'll talk about all six. So the first one is online monitoring, like lockdown browsers. Now, Denor and I are not huge proponents of this. Not at all. All right, if you, if you put a student in a position where they feel like they're being watched, a lot of people think that that makes them feel like, oh, I better not do anything wrong. But what it actually does a lot of times is make them really angry. Like, oh, you don't trust me? Then why should I act in a trustworthy way? So we really don't recommend lockdown browsers, even though Inside Higher Ed does, because of the effect that it has on our students. It tells them, I don't trust you. And if we want them to act in a trustworthy way, then prejudging them as not trustworthy really doesn't sound like a good way to go. But the second thing, and this is totally within our power as professors, educate students about academic integrity expectations. If students are unaware of the expectations, then it's unfair to punish them without their ability to ask questions. And one of the things that a lot of students don't realize, and this, this is hard for us to understand because we have lived all our, all our lives, all our professional lives at least, with the understanding that what I write is my intellectual property. But our students have grown up in a world where property like that isn't really perceived as property anymore, right? If information's out there, then it's anybody, you know, it doesn't matter who wrote it. It, you know, it's a web page. It's a public good. A meme is a meme, regardless of who shares it. Right. And so the idea that they are, for example, committing copyright infringement by taking a snap from a, uh, a current movie and putting words on it, that just does not occur to them that that's not okay. And so I often use very strong words when I talk with my students about this, like, are you a thief? Because if you took part of my dissertation and passed it off as your own work, you're stealing from me. And when I say it that way, it really throws a jolt into my students. They're like, wait, what? Okay, but you've got to educate them. You can't assume that they know that 
copying a web page is wrong. And it may take some time to get through some resistance because at least in the culture that most of our Zoomer students or Gen Z students have, that's not wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. Why would that be wrong? Now, the third suggestion Inside Higher Ed makes is more aimed at institutions, but it's determined whether to institute an academic honor code. Now, I've never been at a school that didn't have one, but for those schools that don't, you know, you ought to get one. It's good to have, again, the expectations. So it's just like saying, here's the rubric for what I'm going to grade you on, right? Letting the students know these are the standards that you need to stay within in an academic honor code. Probably a good thing. If you do have an honor code, frame it as beneficial to both the school and to your students. And one of the people inside higher ed quoted had a really poignant quote where they said, it's less about the moral context and more about us making sure and this helps with student attitudes, that the degree itself is valued. In other words, framing the honor code as beneficial to the students and to the school shows students that they're not thought of as bad people with no moral compass. Instead, it reframes this uh, as short-term gain versus the long-term cost. Great, you cheated on the test, you got the grade, but now your degree is worth less than it was because you didn't put the effort in. Is that really a good thing in the long run for you? Number five is support professors in authentic assessment development, which is fancy words for saying avoid multiple choice and out of the book exam questions. Don't just keep reusing the same questions time and time and time again. Try and give students a way to show off who they are when you're grading them. This could be you assigning group projects. This could be papers where students can be creative because giving them that creativity takes away part of the ability, but also part of the incentives and the opportunities to cheat. And then finally, and again, this is aimed more at the institution, but the institution needs to demonstrate that academic integrity is a budget priority. And this means they got to put the money into having a student affairs office with people who are trained to track cheating and to hold students accountable for when they do it. I know that when my students cheat, I send them to academic affairs or to student affairs, and they have to go through like a little training program about this is what cheating is and why you should not do it and how to avoid it so that it's not all on me the professor to teach them what cheating is it's but but it's only for the violators so the students who don't violate they don't have to go and do that but if the institution has no academic integrity office you know what's a professor supposed to do and then one of the things that i think should also be put in here about the academic honor code Professors, when a student cheats, you need to report them because the, the campus needs to have a record of this student has a pattern of doing this. I remember when I caught a fairly egregious cheater in one of my classes about six years ago, I found out that they had a record as long as my arm of cheating. And when I turned them into academic affairs, academic affairs said, yeah, we're getting reports from every single one of their teachers that all they do is copy it off the web and then rearrange it so that you don't realize that it's from the web. And I said, well, what are you going to do about it? And they said, well, they finally reached the point where they're going to be suspended for a semester. And then we'll see what happens. Oh, for our experiences with it, Adam shared one of his. But I remember early in the pandemic on some teaching groups that Adam and I are in, we saw a lot of fierce debate about cheating. And we recorded a, one of our COVID episodes, I believe it's episode five, where we said, you know, is cheating during a pandemic as big a deal as people feel. One of the big themes in these discussions was the idea of rigor. 
And this association was that having a lockdown browser for exams meant that the tests would be rigorous because students couldn't look down, they couldn't look at notes. I'm not sure what else they couldn't look at, but it got Adam and me to thinking that this was punishing students for assumed bad behavior. It was professors taking out some of probably their stress of navigating through a pandemic, which we all know is challenging to say the least. And assuming that if life is difficult for them, then it must be easy for students and or that the stresses are so great that students might have an incentive to cheat and to, and making them download lockdown browsers and only use them was the best way to cut down on cheating. One of the things that came to mind for Adam and me is one, wow, this is flawed logic, but two, there have to be ways to design projects and design tests where students aren't just answering the same questions. Adam and I are in sociology, which gives us the wiggle room to ask more free writing questions and or scenario and application questions, uh, whereas a math or a chemistry test probably doesn't offer that as much. But that it doesn't offer it as much doesn't mean that you can't figure out ways around the idea of cheating. And by doing that, if you're able to create different projects, you may be able to reduce the weight of the tests, and that in turn is going to reduce how much students cheat. Now, I've had my old exams pop up on sites like Course Hero. So what I learned is to have my question bank select random questions for each quiz or test attempt that my students have, because the system automatically averages their score, which allows them to undo a bad grade somewhat, but also, if they got a pretty decent grade the first time they took it and they really want to post to course hero are they willing to risk reducing that grade a little bit so i'm willing to use that average as kind of a double-edged sword i want to help students who didn't do well bring their grades up but also for someone who might be getting paid to post my material online you're putting your grade on at risk you know are you going to do at least as well the second time because if you don't then your grade is going to go down what I also do is I'll change my questions periodically so that students who access my old tests can see the content that's covered, but the questions that they get on their quiz are probably going to be a little different. Now, I always see cheating as an act of desperation. The students overwhelmed, they're overbooked, they ran out of time, they ran out of energy. They almost always admit to it when I bring them into office hours for a conference, and usually their reasons tie back to stress or fear or a simple lack of knowledge. And I look at this as a teaching moment. Yes, I will have to report you to student affairs because that's my job. But what have you learned from this? And then we talk about things like time management or how to plan a project or how to know what cheating looks like and how to stop doing it. And this is often a problem that students run into with plagiarism. For example, they've been told don't do this, but they haven't been shown what it looks like. The goal is not to make them feel bad about themselves. It's to have them leave the conference with tools that will help them not cheat in the future. The way students can use the advice in this episode, Adam and I are vouching for you in our episodes when we say to not use a lockdown browsers. Justify our faith in y'all by not cheating. We know that cheating most of the time is not a moral decision, it's a pragmatic one. What's going to get you the grade that you need? Well, to make success pragmatic, work on preparing well for all of your classes so that you aren't playing that class roulette as frequently as you have been. Be able to put that time to prep 
in so that you don't feel pressure to cheat by the time the exam comes around. And teachers, here are some ways that you can get students to stop cheating. Group or individual projects. It's kind of hard to cheat on a project, especially if it's a group project because then their classmates are going to hold them accountable. Papers that require them to do some individual creative work or have some individual creative choice. For example, I always tell my students, as long as the topic that you've picked is appropriate for this class, you can talk about whatever you want in your paper. I don't tell them what to write about. I say, you pick. And I've had students pick some amazing things. Of course, I also just recently had a student in a crim class um, say that they wanted to write about pollution, and I'm all, um... While pollution might be a crime, it doesn't really fit with the topic of this class, but I would strongly recommend that you hold on to this wonderful outline that you've made because they made a perfect plan for a paper on pollution. They had nine sources, and I'm like, great, hold on to that, but not for this class. <laughs> you know, do that for an environmental science class. That's great. But make sure that you give them some autonomy, that you give them some ability to choose what they want to write about or what they want to do their project on. Drop the weight of tests and quizzes. Make them low stakes and make them open book and open note. I know that a lot of people really think, oh no, you should never be open book and open note. I don't want my doctor to be open book and open note. Uh, are you aware that most doctors actually go and they look at the articles about how to do this particular surgery right before they do the surgery? That lawyers always have to be bringing books down from the shelf to look up the latest law or the law that's been on the books for 12 years or 20 years or 80 years? Reference works that's how the world works now and yes there may be a couple of different professions where oh no they have to have it all memorized but you know what most of the people in those professions memorize by doing i was just going to add remember that cheating means behavior that's not allowed so if you allow them to use books and notes you've taken cheating away as an option for them because you're allowing you're giving that legitimacy and you're trusting your students you're treating them as adults and we don't see anything wrong with treating our adult students as the adults they are. And then the last thing is rethink rigor. Rigor is one of those words that gets bandied about a lot. You know, we've got a rigorous program, but what it means a lot of times is we stress our students out until they break. That's not rigor. That's just hazing. And I know that a lot of us have memories that are near and dear to our hearts, or quite possibly we hate them with the passion of a thousand burning suns about professors that made us go through a rigorous class or a rigorous program, and we survived it. Therefore, our students should have to survive the same thing. I'm going to categorically say that Denor and I both to that particular view say, uh-uh, no, forget it. Because our job is not to traumatize our students. Even if we were traumatized, why would we turn around and do that to these young adults who are working with us to learn what they need to learn from us. Trauma does not teach anything. And a lot of what people think of as rigor is simply forms of trauma. So that's what we have for you in episode 143. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Android. We have decided to no longer publish this podcast to Spotify. So if you found us there, please take a look at Apple Podcasts or other podcast apps. We'll probably be on them. We're hosted on Blueberry.com, and we'd appreciate it if you wrote a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 144, when Adam and I talk about how to make teaching more inclusive.
You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. And we look forward to seeing you next week.